So obviously you guys have been reading this week and the topic that we have been studying is thankfulness and contentment, which are things the Lord continues, I think, to work in all of our hearts all the time because we are entirely prone to discontentment and to unthankfulness all the time. And we need to constantly be reminded because we forget so often and we respond in ways we don't even <laughs> recognize as being the result of discontentment or the result of unthankfulness. So as we get started, I found this little thing. And I, of course, you know, we always have to start with something a little interesting here. So I thought it was kind of funny. Two friends met each other on the street one day. One looked forlorn, almost on the verge of tears. His friend asked, what has the world done to you, my old friend? The sad fellow said, let me tell you, three weeks ago, my uncle died and left me $40,000. That's a lot of money. And you see, two weeks ago, a cousin I never knew died and left me $85,000, free and clear. Sounds to me that you've been very blessed. Yes, well, you don't understand, he interrupted. Last week, last week, my great aunt passed away. I inherited almost a quarter of a million from her. Now the man's friend was really confused. Then why do you look so glum? Because this week I have received nothing. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know, we can all take an inner look, right? <laughs> because sadly, that little illustration has way more truth than perhaps we would like to admit about ourselves. God has blessed us and blessed us and blessed us. And I think especially as Americans, we have so many worldly goods, so many material blessings, that we have come to a point that we believe that we deserve them. And when all of a sudden, one of our expected blessings doesn't show up, then what do we do? We're ungrateful and we're discontent, and then we go seeking after things that would make us content, or we think would make us content. So anyway, I was also, I just kind of bumped into this article, and um, the title kind of caught my eye based on the topic that we're studying. So here is the title of this, and I'm gonna read just like little segments of this really quickly, but secular article, and I always find it interesting when secular things come to sort of biblical conclusions, or at least observations, maybe not conclusions. But anyways, the title was, Buying a New House, Will It Make You Happy? The writer was describing a new scientific finding that has been named hedonic adaptation. Perhaps you're already familiar with it. And the article goes on to say this, Humans have a sort of hardwired happiness set point, this theory goes. Life events have major short-term effects on emotional well-being. A new job can make us happy. A job loss makes us unhappy. But eventually, emotional happiness returns to baseline. This hedonic adaptation, oh, this is hedonic adaptation. We possess a hardwired well-being set point over time, we return to it. Does this mean there's not much we can do to improve our happiness? Should my friend cancel his house hunt? Maybe. Certainly the evidence seems to suggest that small wins, such as buying material possessions, getting a promotion, etc., don't matter much in the middle term. And then he goes on to say this, our happiness levels go back to baseline until we get the next thing that next pay rise. We're in this constant vicious cycle. It's really a dangerous way of living and it's not sustainable. A Christian couldn't have said it any better. What does he say? It's a really dangerous way of living and it's not sustainable. So essentially he's describing how the discontent person lives. The discontent person is always searching for the next thing that will make him happy. In his pursuit of the feelings that accompany happiness, he must constantly be pursuing the next thing. But ultimately, it doesn't satisfy because eventually the feelings of happiness will dissolve back to baseline. 
The only way to increase the happiness feeling is to fill that void with another thing. And so there we have the cycle. I look for the thing, it makes me happy, I like how I feel, and then I settle back down to my normal discontented state of being, which then makes me want to pursue the next thing that will make me feel happy again. And on and on and on it goes. So what does discontent mean? So I just looked this up in Webster's 1828, and here's what he said. Uneasiness or inquietude of mind, dissatisfaction at any present state of things. That last line, dissatisfaction at any present state of things. The discontent person is dissatisfied and consequently seeks to find something that will bring him satisfaction. Clearly, as I read in that article, even in secular circles, they are recognizing it is not a healthy way to live. Always looking for the next thing, seeking something that will satisfy our inner longings. And of course, we know from scripture, not that we live it, like we ought to, but we know from scripture, Psalm 1611, what does it say? It says, in your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures sometimes. You know that's not right. There are pleasures forever. If we want to be filled, to be satisfied, the only place we will ever find it is in Jesus Christ. And I know I'm preaching to the choir. We all know these things, but we wrestle with them on a daily basis. There's only one person who can satisfy us, and if we turn from him, we will never truly be content. No matter what circumstances, what wonderful things we get, how, how our circumstances can change for the better, none of those things will ultimately make us content. Because like our article said, we will always settle back down to baseline. So as I pondered the passage that I was going to teach today, I was thinking about think, uh, events from the Old Testament and considering different stories, historical narratives. And uh, one came to mind, so of course I started researching it and I thought, I think this will be a great passage for us today. So if you don't mind to turn to 1 Samuel Chapter 8, I'm actually going to read the whole thing, and I realize it's a little bit long, but I think you need to see all of it and to hear all of it. So 1 Samuel 8, starting in verse 1, and go ahead and follow along with me. And it came about when Samuel was old that he appointed his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judging in Beersheba. The sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods. So they are doing to you also. Now then, listen to their voice, however, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. So Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who had asked of him a king. He said, this will be the procedure of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and place them for himself in his chariots and among his horsemen and they will run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and fifties, and some to do his plowing and to reap his harvest and to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will also take your daughters for perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give to the officers and to his servants." 
He will also take your male servants and your female servants and your best young men and your donkeys and use them for his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his servants. Then you will cry out in the day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations, that our kings may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now after Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the Lord's hearing. The Lord said to Samuel, listen to their voice and appoint them a king. So Samuel said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. <clears throat> so this passage outlines the children of Israel's rejection of God, resulting in their pursuit of a king whom they deemed would bring present happiness regardless of the cost and regardless of the warning that Samuel gave them. Samuel lays out, because God told him to, he lays out all the things that a king will do if they get a human king instead of letting God be their king. And yet, they still cry out, give us a king. So to give you a little bit of background, 1 Samuel 8 actually marks a major turning point in the history of Israel. So it's a transitioning from judgeship to kingship. So if you remember uh, when uh, the children of Israel left Egypt, then they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and then, which Moses led them, then they went into the land and Joshua led them. Well, then what came after that? Then they had this period of a couple of hundred years of judges who God would raise up and he would lead the people. So now what we have, Samuel was the last Israelite judge. And the people now are saying, you are old and your sons are wicked, so we want a king. Now, this wasn't an entirely evil thing that the people were asking for, because back in Deuteronomy 17, God had made provision for the people to have a king. However, it came with a warning, and this warning that I just read out of this passage was it. A human king was not going to be everything they thought it was cracked up to be. A human king was not going to rule them in justice and kindness and goodness the way that God would do. So it is also important to note that there was a gap of many years between chapter 7 and then chapter 8. Because you may have noticed that we started out the very first verse. It says, Samuel is old. So you don't know this because you didn't read chapter 7, but... There, Samuel is a much younger man, and then all of a sudden we get to chapter 8, and it starts out by saying, okay, Samuel's old. So it's giving us there a bit of a timeline so that we realize some space, some time has passed, a number of years between those two chapters. So as the years have passed, the people have become more and more distracted from the worship of Yahweh, and they have slipped back into an idolatrous mindset. So A on your outline. Samuel appointed his sons as judges. So these beginning verses set the stage for us. Samuel is now old, and he has appointed his sons as judges over Israel in Beersheba. Sadly, his sons, named Joel and Abijah, did not walk in the ways of their father. And instead, they pursued dishonest gain, and they took bribes and perverted justice. So we aren't really given a whole lot of information about this, a lot of details or anything as to why and how all of this occurred, but apparently this situation with Samuel uh, entering his more elderly years and him appointing his sons who it turned out to be were, were not godly men, this became the catalyst that the Israelites then used to say, give us a king. And so that's exactly what they did. They sent the elders, and the elders then presented their case before Samuel and said, we want a king. So B, reasons the elders of Israel asked 
for a king. So number one, Samuel, this, this was like kind of the, I thought of it like in counseling terms, this is the presenting problem. So this is like what they are making it sound like, okay, here's the reason. And he says, Samuel was old and his sons were sinful. So these were actually truthful statements, but they were only the surface reasons. These things acted more like a smokescreen. The real reason they wanted a king was so that they could be like the other nations. And they stated that as well, but they first were saying, well, you know, you're old, your sons are wicked, and we really think we should have a king so that we can be like the other nations. So number two, they wanted a human king like the other nations. And I have on the side of your outline there, envy. And I want, well, we're going to talk about that, but I wanted to point that out so that you see what's going on. Because whenever we envy the world, it leads to discontentment. Or when we envy one another, same thing. <clears throat> what we see here is their idolatrous desire to have a king they could see one who had all the glory and fanfare of all the other nations. So commentator John Gill says this, what they were desirous of was to have a king appearing in pomp and splendor, wearing a crown of gold clothed in royal apparel with a scepter in his hand, dwelling in a stately palace, keeping a splendid court and attended with grand retinue as the rest of the nations about them had had for a long time. So they're thinking, oh, thank you. They're thinking of all the wonderful aspects of a king. And of course, this, the, the passage doesn't tell us that per se. However, if they were thinking about all the negative aspects of what a king would do, they would not be saying, give us a king. So this is Alexander McLaren. He says this, we too are ever being tempted to prefer the solid security, as our foolish senses call it, of visible supports and delights, to the shadowy help of an unseen arm. How many of us would feel safer with a good balance at our bankers than with God's promises? How many of us live as if we thought that men or women Men or women were better recipients of our love than our trust and our trust than God. How few, even of professing Christians, really and habitually walk by faith, not by sight. Do we not see ourselves in the mirror of this story? If we do not, we should. Note, too, that we cannot combine reliance on the seen and the unseen at the same time. Life must be molded by one or the other. The craving for a king was the rejection of Jehovah. They, we can't pursue the things of the world and find our hope and help in what we can see and feel and touch and smell. And at the same time have a trust in God. We can't do both. It's one or the other. And the Israelites, I think, were such a, a really good picture of that. If you have read through the Old Testament, if you are familiar with all the different ways that we see the Israelites, it's either one or the other. Either they're pursuing Yahweh, obedient to Yahweh, or they're pursuing worldly, godless idolatry and rejecting God. It's always one or the other. How often we get ourselves into trouble by looking at the world around us and desiring to have what they have. Proverbs 23, 17 says this, Do not let your heart envy sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord always. That is the key. There's our contrast, right? If you envy sinners, you are not living in the fear of the Lord. We need to ever always be pursuing the fear of the Lord so that that will keep us from being envious of sinners, of, of the world. The Israelites looked neither to God nor to the one God had appointed as their leader to guide them. They looked at the wicked, idolatrous nations around them to determine their desires. And rather than living in the fear of the Lord, they allowed their hearts to envy their sinning neighbors. So what things in the world do you allow to influence your desires? This is an important question because the world is designed to create 
desire in us for everything that it promotes. Have you looked at how we see ads everywhere? I'm not telling you anything you don't know. The world is designed to make us desire more things, different things, better things, things we don't have. The world is always selling something. It is always trying to convince us that, we, that what it has is what we need. Listen to yourself when you're talking. How often do you use the word need for things that truly aren't necessary? Our culture has replaced the word want with the word need. And unfortunately, we often believe that our wants are necessities that we cannot be content unless we have. Listen to yourself. Like really make a note to do this. And, and pay attention to how many things that you say you need. I need a new refrigerator. I need my kids to obey me. I need a new dress. All these things that we say that we need, do we actually need them? What do we truly need? We need Christ as our Savior. If we had not another physical, temporal thing, we have everything we need because we have salvation in Jesus Christ. And what happens is when we think we need these other things and we talk like we need these other things, we believe that we need these other things, and immediately where do we go? Into discontentment. Well, I don't have what I need, and so now I'm discontent. We might think we need things like a happier family, a secure retirement plan, a better job, <laughs> a more loving husband, more vacations, a life that is more organized and put together. Wouldn't we all like that? The perfect gift on Valentine's. A new kitchen or maybe even a house remodel. More romance. Of course, you know, Valentine's is on the mind right now. <laughs> Deserved leisure. There's so many things that we think we need, and we don't even stop to consider. If you never went on another vacation, if your husband was never any more loving than he is today, in fact, if he became less loving, do you actually need him to be different? No, because we have everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him that comes from the word of God, right? We have everything that we need. One of the first lessons which we have to learn, and one, oh sorry, this is McLaren again. One of the first lessons which we have to learn, and one of the last which we have to practice, is a wholesome disregard of other people's ways. If we are to do anything worth doing, we must be content to be in a minority of one. So when we are comparing ourselves to the world, we're desiring to be like them. We're desiring to have what they have. But here's the thing. If we never had anything that they have, it doesn't matter. We can be perfectly content like that. Now, the other thing that is connected to this then is the fear of man, right? Because if I don't look like them, they might reject me. So that's a whole other thing that I'm not going to get into. But it's worth at least taking a look at and considering. It is a great Christian virtue to be able to live contentedly in whatever circumstances we are in, regardless of what everyone else around us has or is doing. The Israelites failed to do this because rather than looking to God, they compared themselves to the wicked nations around them and determined their need accordingly. So number three, they wanted a king to fight their battles. So you'll notice there, it says fear on the, the little end of your outline there. So fear is partially what was driving them here. <clears throat> so verse 20, down at the end of our passage, says this. They said that we may also be like the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. This is what they wanted. They felt like having a human king was going to enable them to have a king who would go out and fight for them and conquer the wicked nations. 
Well, we find out a couple of chapters later that the Ammonites were moving in against the Israelites, and this is what was causing their fear. Chapter 11 explains their interactions with the Amorites. When the elders made the statement that they wanted a king to fight their battles, they were looking for someone to protect them from the Ammonites. See, they were looking at imminent danger in front of them. That's how they were viewing it. We have the Ammonites that are coming against us, and if we had a human king, that would be our salvation. So if we look at 1 Samuel 12, verses 12 and 13, it says this, When you saw that Nahash, the king of the sons of Ammon, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us, although the Lord your God was your king. Now therefore, here is the king whom you have chosen, whom you have asked for, and behold, the Lord has set a king over you. So this is later, some time has passed, and now Samuel is talking to the people and he's saying, you were concerned about the Ammonites. And so you said, put a king, a human king, to reign over us. And he says uh, that they had then, of course we know, rejected God as their king. The fear of their enemies and the fear of the future against their enemies eclipsed their view of God. Rather than remembering all that God had done for them, trusting him in the face of their enemy, they succumbed to their fear and cried out for a human king of flesh and blood. One they could see and hear and one they could visibly follow into battle. They had entirely forgotten so many of the other battles that God had gone before and, and won for them. Remember Jericho. Could they see God as they went in? No, but God went before them. And what a strange way to conquer a city, to march around it. And yet that's what God said to do. And then he gave them the victory as they went in and destroyed the people of Jericho. And what about the Amalekites? You remember when Joshua had led the, the children of Israel into battle and Moses had to keep his arms raised. And so Aaron and Hur got on either side of him and kept his arms raised. And as soon as his arms came down, what happened? The people started to lose the battle. And so then they would raise them up. And it was such a long time that he had to have help keeping his arms up because he couldn't keep them up. And yet God went before them and won the battle. See, they had forgotten what God had done for them. So number four, they forgot the goodness and faithfulness of God. Rather than fearfully looking to the future, they should have reflected on God's goodness toward them in the past. Sadly, they did not remind themselves of the event that occurred in chapter seven, which you may not know either. So. Because of those events, they didn't need a king. It was another example that God would fight their battles for them. So if you just flip over a page, 1 Samuel 7, I'm going to um, try and shorten this a little bit, so I'm just going to read a few of these verses. But starting in verse 7, it says, Now when the Philistines heard that the sons of Israel had gathered to Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And the sons of Israel heard it. They were afraid of the Philistines. Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it for a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shen and named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued, and they did not come any more within the border of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. So now remember, there was a gap between chapter seven and chapter eight. So there was some time, it wasn't like this happened yesterday. However, they should have remembered. They should have remembered that God had again fought this battle for them. Why had they not had years of the Philistines coming in and attacking them? Because God was the one that kept them away. It was God's power, and yet they weren't reflecting on that. They were thinking about what was to come, what was right on in, in the near future, and they were afraid. 
And sadly, this had been their continual response to the Lord. And it says in verse 8 of, of our chapter, uh, chapter 8, Like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods. This to me is a very chilling statement. Would that be said of me? That I would be like the children of Israel. That they would continually, God rescues them, they go back to sinful idolatry and God rescues them and they go back to sinful idolatry. And we're so prone to pursue sinful fixes when we are up against difficulties. The Lord brings trials into our lives. Why does he do that? To test us so that we might see what is in our hearts. To give us the opportunity to reflect Christ in our responses. To trust God. To say, not my will, but your will be done. And yet, so often when difficult things come, our habitual pattern is the Lord has forsaken me. I can't trust him. I have to fix it myself. I have to be in control. And we fear and we doubt. And we let sin overrule our minds. And we do not live with a contented heart, trusting that God has our best in mind. The people had continually forgotten the goodness of God in the history of their nation. Interestingly, measures had been taken on a few occasions to help them remember all that God had done for them, and yet they still forgot. So you remember from Joshua, this is uh, Joshua 4, verses 4 through 7. This is an example of where they had set up a memorial. God had told them, set up a memorial so that you do not forget. So when your children ask, you can explain to them, this is who God is, this is what he's done. It says, starting in verse 4, So Joshua called the twelve men whom he had appointed from the sons of Israel, one man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Cross again to the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan, and each of you take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Israel. Let this be a sign among you, so that when your children ask later, saying, What do these stones mean to you? And then you shall say to them, Because the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, when it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall become a memorial to the sons of Israel forever. The Lord knew they would forget. And so he said, Bring the stones so that when you see them, you will be reminded and you won't go pursuing other gods. You won't pursue idolatrous worship. Instead, you will worship me. You will be faithful to me. You will trust me. You will be content in my provision for you. So perhaps that was a little harder to remember because it had been several hundred years since Joshua had led the children of Israel. But they should not have forgotten the events of 1 Samuel 7 that I just read to you. This was probably the event that had happened in 1 Samuel 7, had probably happened within the lifetime of many of them. Here, Samuel has set a stone of remembrance of well, as well. So remember from uh, 1 Samuel 7, verse 12, we read this, but just as a reminder here, it said, Then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shen and named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. God had them set up things that would remind them so that they wouldn't forget. You know, the children of Israel did not have accessible to them all the things that we have accessible to us today. They didn't have little phones with the Bible right there at one click. They didn't have sermons that they could listen to about all kinds of wonderful teaching pastors. They couldn't, they couldn't just go to church the same way that we do. They didn't even have the Holy Spirit continually residing in them the way that we have. So what excuse do we have? Because we are so much like the children of Israel. As I was studying it this week, I kept thinking, and that's me, and that's me. There's no excuse. 
Perhaps I don't have a pile of rocks in the same way that they did, but I have everything I need pertaining to life and godliness. I have no reason ever to be discontent or to be unthankful with what God has given me. And I have every reminder that I could possibly need. And each one of you sits out here as a reminder to me as we interact, as we share together, as we pray for one another. You are reminding me of the faithfulness of God, which is one of the reasons why we need the body of Christ, why we don't survive when we alienate ourselves from the fellowship of the body, because we need one another to remind us. Because when we aren't reminded, we forget. And when we forget the goodness of God, we reject him and we pursue our own idolatrous things in the world that we think that we need. And we are discontent and we are unthankful. It's very, very sobering reality. Even with all the memorials that God gave them at various times, they still forgot the goodness of God toward them. And as I said, we are no different. We too forget the goodness of God in our lives. The fear of the future becomes greater in our minds than the proof of the past. Rather than reflecting on God's goodness with an attitude of thankfulness, both in salvation and in our daily lives, we look only at the concern of the moment. And as I was thinking through how easily we forget the goodness of God. I was reminded of City of Light. I know I've mentioned them before. I just love their lyrics. And so I thought I would read the lyrics with only one chorus. So they have the little chorus that they go in between each verse. But I want to read the words to you, and I want you to hear how often they say the word. Now, this is not scripture, but this is the reflection of that. And how often they say, rest. He says, come you weary heart now to Jesus. Come you anxious soul now and see. There is perfect love and comfort in your tears. Rest here in his wondrous peace. Come find what this world cannot offer. Come and find your joy here complete. Taste the living water, never thirst again. Rest here in his wondrous peace. Come and find your hope now in Jesus. He is all he said he would be. Grace is overflowing from the Savior's heart. Rest here in his wondrous peace. Oh, the goodness, the goodness of Jesus. Satisfied. He is all that I need. May it be, come what may, that I rest all my days in the goodness of Jesus because we can rest in that goodness. But the problem is, we look not at Jesus to find goodness. We look at the world to find what we think will satisfy us. And then we forget that our God is good. And we end up in discontentment and unthankfulness for all that God has done for the blood that Jesus shed on our account, to be unthankful, that we would ever have any moment of unthankfulness in our lives. One thought of, of unthankfulness or discontentment is a horrible thing, a horrible affront to our God who gave everything that we might have eternal salvation. So then, see on your outline, the Lord's response to Samuel's prayer. The Lord says, listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say. So, number one, they were not rejecting Samuel. That's what Samuel's initial thoughts were, is that they were rejecting him. Initially, Samuel was distressed over the request of the Israelites. He could not see the hearts of the elders. He only heard their request to rid him and his sons of leadership and appoint a king over the people instead. This distressed Samuel. 
So then God reminds Samuel that this has been the pattern of the people since he delivered them from the Egyptians. And I already mentioned that before, but looking back at that verse again, it says, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. It was not really a personal affront to Samuel. It was a rejection of God. And since Samuel represented God to them, they were by default rejecting Samuel. And this is the way of evil men. And Jesus even spoke of it in the Gospels. Remember in John 15, 20, he said, Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they, if they kept my word, they will keep yours also. This is a New Testament example of the principle that we see in Samuel. If people reject God, they are going to also reject the one who speaks of God, the one who proclaims God, the one who teaches the truth of his word. And that was what Samuel was experiencing, was their rejection. But ultimately, he was just, he was just a pawn. They truly were rejecting God. This is a chilling thought to me. In our pursuit of our own way, we have a tendency to reject God's servants when we don't get what we want from them. Sin and idolatry in our hearts cause us not only to reject God, but also to reject those who lead the church. How tragic it has been to see people set on pursuing their own way, becoming angry when the sh with the shepherds of the flock. It leads to gossip and division within the church, and often they eventually leave the church. And we must be so careful to guard our hearts that we would not be like that. And of course, when Jesus was, was talking to his disciples, he was talking about unbelievers that would reject them because they were rejecting Christ. But I think we can still, as believers, reject the truth and the teaching that comes from our elders when we don't like what they say. And I have seen that on multiple occasions to the point of people leaving the church because they did not like the truth that was spoken that confronted them in their sin. And when that happens, then it leads to further sin. And they reject, they not only reject the initial teaching of the shepherd or the elder, the teacher, the pastor, but then they spread because they want people to agree with them and they gossip and they cause dissension in the church. We can never be like that. We must be so careful to evaluate, to come back to the word, to ask the Lord, search my heart. Show me if there be any wicked way in me so that I would not reject the teaching of your word, so that I would not reject those who teach it. So number two, they rejected God Ultimately, the elders were rejecting God. In their envy and in their fear, they failed to draw near to God, to cry out to him for help, protection, and strength. James 4.8 says, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So as we noted earlier, this was not the habit of the Israelites. Their first response was to run to idols rather than running to God. Again and again, their habitual pattern was to forsake God in their fear, panic, and rebellion. Again and again, to pursue idolatry. So verse 8 says, Like all the deeds which they have done, again, I keep referring back to this, uh, this verse here, because to see the pattern of the Israelites. So uh, verse eight, like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods. This was no new thing. All that they had done since they were wonderfully favored of God. Sorry, this is a quote from John Gill. Um, let me start again. This was no new thing. All they had done since they were wonderfully favored of God as to be brought out of Egyptian bondage was all of a piece with this one. 
one continued series of ingratitude, of rebellion against God and against his servants that he employed under him, such as Moses, <clears throat> excuse me, and Aaron. So then, number three, the contrast of Paul's steadfast contentment. And we have to look at this even for just a second because Paul is the exact opposite of the Israelites. And I'm talking of the Apostle Paul here. So in contrast to the Israelites, <clears throat> we have a beautiful example of a man who practiced unwavering contentment in the face of destitute privations. So in Philippians 4, this is, this is very well known, a couple of verses here, and I actually had considered teaching these, but because they are so well known, that's why I went hunting for something else, but we can't get through a lesson on contentment without at least briefly visiting these. So Philippians 4, 11 through 13, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And we like that little verse, I can do all thing, things through him who strengthens me. But here's the thing, when you think about conquering discontentment in your life, you remember this little verse because this is the context that it is written in. <laughs> and of course we can take the broad principle to other areas of sanctification in our lives, but when we wrestle to be content, we know that we can be content because Paul writes, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, including discontentment. But I need to recognize why am I struggling with discontentment? How have I gotten my gaze off of my Savior? Where have I placed it that now it's resulting in discontentment? So John MacArthur said this regarding Paul. He said, the reason this man was content was because he knew that the times and the seasons and opportunities of life were controlled by a sovereign God. Until you learn that, you will never be content. Until you come to the place in your life where you understand that God is sovereign and is ordering everything for his holy purposes and is working all things after the counsel of his will and is making all things work together for good, you will always be discontent because you will take on the responsibility to organize and order your, your own life and you will frustrate yourself if you can't control everything. And that was where Paul learned the secret of contentment. He was able to rest in the sovereignty of God's goodness. And God's goodness was not determined based on whether Paul had a lot or whether Paul had a little. It wasn't based on circumstances, good versus bad. That's why he could sing, sitting, beaten in a prison because his contentment did not come from his circumstances, which was not what the Israelites' experience was. When their circumstances didn't turn out the way they wanted it, they were immediately discontent, crying out. You remember when they came to the Red Sea after God had delivered them from Egypt and they were trapped with the Egyptians on one side and the Red Sea in front of them. Was there God had just done all these amazing miracles to help them escape. And they left no less with all this, this stuff that the Egyptians poured out to them, gold and silver. And they had all of this with them. And now all of a sudden, here they are, stuck in their minds. And they freak out because the trial was in their minds so big and great they needed relief and they didn't turn to God. They couldn't control it. And because they couldn't control it, they were discontent. 
and they then became sinful in their responses. And I think control, our, our desire to control, plays into this an awful lot as well. The Israelites wanted to control their lives and circumstances because they believed they could orchestrate the outcome better than God could. Thus, they lived in discontentment against God's plans. Paul, on the other hand, trusted completely in the sovereignty of a good God, and the result was perfect contentment. And I find it interesting that Paul says, I have learned. He doesn't say, I am learning. I will say probably till the day I die, I am learning. But Paul said, I have learned. He was content because he was resting in the sovereignty of God. So then D, Samuel's warning regarding a king. And basically what I want you to see here is just kind of the contrast here of the goodness of God versus all that a human king was going to be. So the advice he gave was not to think of a king, but to be content with the government under which they were. But to this, they would not hearken, notwithstanding all the inconveniences that would attend such a change. So essentially we have here what the king, so this is one on your outline, what the king will take from you. So then under that, it says six times in this passage, and we're not going to look through all those verses because they're kind of long, but I just wanted to highlight for you really, really quickly, what are the things that God warned the Israelites that the king would take? So there was more with this, but here are the very basics. A, he will take your sons. B, he will take your daughters. C, he will take your best fields and vineyards. D, he will take a tenth of your seed and your vineyards. E, he will take your servants. And F, he will take a tenth of your flock. All these things that God never tried to take from them, but that's what a king would do. Because remember, if they want all this pomp and glory and, and splendor of a king, how's he going to get it? He's going to get it from your provisions. He's going to get it from what you have. The king is going to take all these things. Be warned. Be warned. Do you want this king still with all the things that he will take from you? So number two, idolatry or sinful desires blind us to reality. So John Gill says this, If a man saw the consequences of his sin at the moment of temptation, he would not do it. But this is the wonder that he does not see them, though he knows them well enough, and that, and that the knowledge has no power to restrain him. So they knew this, but they couldn't visually see it, and knowledge was not enough to keep them from pursuing their own willful way. The people did, didn't care about the warning. They were so set on getting their own way that in the moment they were willing to give up all these important relationships and resources to gratify their immediate desire to have a king that looked like all the nations that would save them from the enemy. How many lives have been destroyed as a result of this kind of thinking and acting? Years ago, I had a, a, a little friend that lived across the street and we didn't live in a super great neighborhood at that time. And she lived with her boyfriend, who was also the father of her baby that I think was like 11 months old or something at the time. And he was a drug dealer, which I didn't know at first. And one night, his meth lab blew up in the house across the street from us. And we discovered what was going on. And he, of course, was, was arrested and taken away. Well, she continued to live there and she had very little provisions for herself and that kind of thing. And so I was trying to think of ways that I could help her and also, most importantly, share the gospel with her. That was my greatest desire was that she would know Christ. And at one point she had told me, she said, well, I don't have a driver's license and I don't remember what the exact circumstances around that were, 
but she had her boyfriend's car available to her and so she was going to go take the car and go driving and I of course was very concerned because I'm looking at it going don't do that if you drive the car and something happens then you could be arrested and what would happen to your baby of course I'm not telling her all of this you know all these thoughts that are running through my head but I'm like I, I think it would be better not to do that and how old was I at the time like 24 maybe I was pretty young and so sure enough a few weeks later, here she comes, and she's very concerned because she had driven the car, she'd gotten in an accident, and now she had a court date, and the, the potential was that her daughter could be taken from her. And so she was trying to find, like, what can I do to set up some sort of care for my daughter? She did not have the wisdom. And so she was going headlong. She knew that if she got pulled over or something happened, she knew that there could be consequences, but in the moment to get to the store, to get what she needed, to go do that errand, whatever it was, even though she knew the things that could happen, she did not have the wisdom that comes from the Lord that would help her to say, that would be unwise, I should not do that. And so she did it anyways, and then had to live in the consequences of that. In the moment, her need to drive the car and eliminate a momentary discomfort was so great that she was willing to put the care of her baby on the line as well as her own personal freedom. How often do our momentary desires trump what we know is right? In our passion, we ignore what is best and we seek to pursue what will satisfy us in the moment. So a few examples here. I've watched couples with perfectly good, suitable, even lovely homes become discontent because they look at what other people have. Their discontentment and ungratefulness for what God has given them led to purchasing a bigger, more expensive house, which was harder to afford, and in the long run, they ended up losing that. I've watched single women so desirous of a husband that they pursue relationships with men who are not godly. Again, their discontentment and ungratefulness for all that God has blessed them with drove them to look for a husband in all the wrong places. When we reject God's perfect plan for us, it opens the door to any number of sinful responses and eventual consequences in our lives. We must be so careful to evaluate our hearts to assess if our motives for asking for something come from a heart of idolatry or from surrender to God. Now we, we would hear that statement and go, duh, like, I can recognize an idolatrous desire compared to a desire to please the Lord. Well, let me help you think that one through a little bit again. Because sin is deceitful. And we have an enemy prowling around, seeking whom he might devour, using the world in a way that would entice us by the deceitfulness of what is in the world. And our own hearts, apart from God, deceive us and so we can begin to think that this is a good and right thing to pursue when actually it's not a good thing at all and it is motivated by sinful desires and so this is why getting good counsel can be helpful with that friend that i told you about so many times that was just one example so many times i thought just before you make any decisions come and talk to me <laughs> I've had counselees, the same thing. Before you say a word, before you go anywhere, before you do anything, just check, just check with me first so that we can look at the word to evaluate, is this biblical? Because how often we are controlled by the sinful desires of our flesh and we run away with it and we end up rejecting our God. That is the biggest thing is we reject our God. We look at the consequences sometimes and we think, oh, I don't want the consequences. And the consequences are bad and they are negative, but it is the fact that we have rejected our God for those things that is most, most grievous. So E, the Lord granted their request. So he said, listen to their voice and appoint to them a king. So number one is be careful what you ask for. There are times in life when God turns us over to our desires in order that he might teach us about himself. Keep in mind that just because you get an answer to your prayer doesn't mean you are desiring what God desires or choosing the will of God. 
I've watched women walk into unwise situations explaining that they have a peace about the situation. Many foolish decisions with difficult consequences have occurred under the pretense of a peaceful feeling. God's word needs to be our guide, and by faith we must choose to obey it. <clears throat> Sometimes when we have our hearts dead set on getting our own way, God in his wisdom will grant us the request that we ask of him. And the reason that he does it is because he will give us what we cry for in order for us to see his goodness, in order for us to see the folly of our own pursuit and then help us to recognize we need to pursue him. So as we end here, that is exactly what the children of Israel actually ended up doing. 1 Samuel 12, 19 and 20 says this, Then all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God so that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil by asking for ourselves a king. Samuel said to the people, Do not fear, you have committed all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Even when we discover that we have been crying out for things that are not godly and God even gives them to us and we recognize it, what do we do? We ought to repent and follow the Lord. We don't live in guilt that keeps us from coming to him. We repent and we come back to him to pursue him and no longer reject him. Let's pray. <clears throat> 